Hello and welcome to Skeleton Songs. Hello. You have printed notes, um, which means that this episode is going to be very serious and you're going to read off a fact sheet and there'll be a test at the end. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I want to marshal with the witnesses to the prosecution. I was going to say, you have already put off all the Americans listening to this with swearing in the first 20 seconds. Do you know I got a feedback um, form for my GDC talk a couple of years ago that said it's really great to talk, there's just too much profanity, so I won't be coming to the speakers' talks again. To be fair, you did have an entire slide dedicated to the F word. So it was Skeleton song. <laughs> so yeah, this episode, well, I mean, p- people who've listened to this um, series before might have listened to an episode um, uh, a couple podcasts ago um, about women and menstruation, and that episode primarily consisted of me getting cross about anti-feminist things. So this episode, it's AK's turn, and he's going to get cross about... Uh, I'm not going to get cross about it. I'm just going to get cross about the name of it, world building. Mm. So um, it's quite an interesting discussion, this, because I am a English lit student, um, and to me... I mean, you're not. You're an English lit graduate. That's <laughs> true. You're an imposter. I'm not old. I'm not young anymore. Um, but to me, the idea of world building does not sound anger-inducing, or even the name not sound annoying but you have a bit of a bee in your bonnet about it as a award-winning <laughs> narrative designer so that's the thing is 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 i people come up to me or have come up to me at, you know if not literally figuratively cocktail parties and said so you're uh, known for your world building and i spill a drink down my front and cry uh, and, and while i'm mopping it i explain that i don't object to Inventing a setting or setting a story somewhere imaginative, all that stuff is great. What I object to is is all the baggage that comes with the term. And I think I said in a column long ago that what world building sounds like is sort of Vogons in reverse. It's not about making a myth. It's about um, trying to sort of move big blocks together and worry about the plumbing. And I think it's particularly prevalent in game design because, of course, when you make a game, you're making a really big, complicated device, especially if it's something sort of Ubi-sized or, or um, Guerrilla Game-sized. You need a world. You need to make sure the world's the right shape, it's got the right geometry, and it's got the right entities in it spawning in the right way and all the it's physics interact. It's very rules-based. So you, you need to think about how to develop the world and build the world. And you think about the writers who come in and, you know, essentially put put a layer of plaster over the top of it. And then you sell uh, novels based on on the setting and people pay them out. But it's... it's... Well, let me put it this way. There's a um, uh, a gent who wrote about what he called secondary creation, which will give the game away to a bunch of folks straight away. It's Tolkien. Talk about secondary creation or sub-creation as um, what he was doing and what other people were doing when they wrote fantasy and Tolkien of course wrote fantasy and designed a setting and built a goddamn world in a way nobody ever had before Uh, but he said and I love this quote part of the attraction of the Lord of the Rings is I think due to the glimpses of a large history in the background an attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlight mist to go there is to destroy the magic unless new unattainable vistas are again revealed and he's bang on he knew what he was talking about and he was writing a letter about his concerns about doing the Silmarillion. Well, I was going to bring the Silmarillion into There it. you go. Talk For people that. who haven't uh, heard of this, firstly, why are you under a rock? But mostly, um, the, the Lord of the Rings is the kind of narrative story side of it that is basically 
user-facing and user-friendly. And The Silmarillion, as far as I understand, is a sort of complicated backstories and rules and lineologies and genealogies that explain a lot of the relationships and a lot more of the kind of world that isn't necessarily relevant to the mm. actual plot, but is interesting if you're interested in the world more generally. So the, the summary I've heard of it is for super Tolkien nerds, fan, like fantastic uh, source material, mm. but to your average layman reader, really boring. And it didn't ever enjoy anything like the success of, of Rings. I can't remember if it was published in the end before or after Tolkien's death. Certainly it was filled out with, with unpublished material. But uh, he... Tolkien did not sit down to build a world because he was making a project. He sat down to, famously, you know, started out by inventing languages. But even before that, when he was a kid, he was drawing maps and he was um, uh, sketching stories, uh, which later developed into Lord of the Rings, out of the pure joy of creation. And uh, somehow the idea has evolved from this, from this... this uh, English lit nerd a century ago. Anglo-Saxon lit nerd to you. Anglo-Saxon lit nerd. Well, more about that Represent. in a moment, actually. Uh, he, he, he did this, this thing that he loved doing. And like 100 years later, you can buy books of world building that will say, menacingly, start by writing a timeline. And that's like... No. All, 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 you see, I don't understand that. I don't... So what you said so far to me sounds like it is not um, a sort of existential problem with world building. You have a problem with implementation. You find a lot of people's approach to world building rules-based and unnecessary and lots of detail that isn't actually relevant to making a good story. So so why is a timeline a bad place to start? Well, let me... Well, OK, so first of all, um, I have names as a writer. Um, I'm biased, but they're important. What's the most delicious food I make? Uh, oh, that's a tough one, but your pulled pork. Right. So instead of making pulled pork, I said that I was... Um, uh, flesh spicing that you have damaged it right I'm not there, there, there we go so world building is, is, is like this and I talk about, about creating a myth um, and a time a what, timeline a, waste of pigs? a timeline isn't interesting a timeline um, and this, this is a quote I stole from Bruce Garrick about something quite different um, is homework uh, if, you, if you're given a story you read it and you go coo gosh if you're given a timeline you think oh there are going to be questions on this mm. and when we get to act two there might be a sort of multiple choice thing where if I don't know uh, that King Boo took over from Queen Far, then I'm going to lose some experience. But isn't, isn't the timeline the sort of backbone of, of the narrative's work? It's not meant to be presented as the reader as the final thing. It's Absolutely. Me- it's meant to so, underpin so, so, the so, coherency of the story. But if you're Frank Gehry and you're, you're building the, um, uh, the Guggenheim in Bilbao, mm. I bet he didn't start out by planning the toilets. I bet before they started building it, they needed to work out the fucking timeline. And sure, if you are building a, a, a big multi-person IP... Uh, then uh, you're going to need to sit down and work out what happened when and why. Mm. But that's not what makes the world interesting. All worlds, once they get sufficiently complicated, all fictional worlds have timelines, or real mm. ones them do because, you know, time and space. And if you start out with a timeline, then you start out by making it like everything else. And the whole point about Tolkien, the reason Tolkien is so successful and so memorable and had such an impact is he was doing something that people hadn't done before. So trying to resynthesize what Tolkien did is missing the point. It's, mm. it's, it's like people who want endless Batman content when what people really want <laughs> is not necessarily... So I'm not being rude about Batman for once. Uh, uh, what people really want is content that made them feel like Batman did when they first came across this dark yeah. agent of the night. That's interesting because I know that as a... So you are a, a writer, a creative director and a CEO, right? All of which I think you have uh, done well 
primarily because, well, you're naturally talented, but because you always go top down. So your thing about being a CEO has been to teach everyone to long for the sea and have a clear um, strategy for a company. Your idea as a creative director has been to have a very clear set of themes that everything leads towards. So I know when you made Summer Sea, Mm -hmm. every bit of the story that was written by multiple different people, you kept saying there has to be some sort of reference to the main core themes of the game which then mm-hmm. results in this very coherent feeling thing which didn't start off with a timeline i told everyone there needed to be some reference to home or its absence in every story that exactly about. and what's what's really nice about that and, and when you talk about the tolkien thing of you know it's about um giving people that vista of this distant land and the mountains and the, and the what might be rather than saying here's all the detail that's that's your approach with your writing as well so you're saying that rather than building it up from minutiae the thing is to start at the top of the mountain see what the feeling is that you want to evoke is that fair at all you give me a face and i can't tell it, it, uh, it is except i think it's um just because i know that theme is very important to you it is but 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 i think so every every writer works differently okay but but lots of writers work in listeners he is lines. giving me a face <laughs> the I, I don't think many writers start by sitting down saying right I, I want to evoke these themes so here's a five point plan for how mm. to do it what you start out with is an itch in your soul an itch in your soul uh, a, a creative itch that uh, makes you want to write a certain kind of story or do a certain kind of thing in Tolkien's case you know in a hole in the ground they lived a hobbit or, or um, what he said was that all human stories are ultimately about death uh, did he? yes he did and oh he said that God. if elves have human stories the same way that we have fairy stories um, our fairy stories are all about the escape from death and their human it. stories were all about being the escape from deathlessness yeah but he's he, a goth isn't he his, he, he described a, a particular work in a couple of ways he said it was about um, a man at war with hostile world and his inevitable overthrow in time and he also described it as being like a work that was as if somebody had found an inheritance of stones in a field they owned and they'd built a tower out of those stones so that the tower had a, 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 a roots back in I the past. I know what this is. I suspect it's a famous right. essay. It is about that D&D book you like. Ah, this is the, the episode where you get cross, not me. Ladies and gentlemen, he is clearly referring to Beowulf. Um, one of the greatest bits of literature ever written that AK hasn't read. So he um, he beats it up every time he can to make everyone think that he has read it. When I was nine, hasn't. I read the abridged version that was oh, adapted by Roger Lonsdale oh, Green. Yeah. When the dragon <laughs> came, did he? And the big man had a fight. Yeah, well, that's the, I know the plot now. It's all just, you know. It's, it's all about the plot, isn't it? Yes, he has three fights. I he, think our he, next game should be ten words to say, fights. woman has library, you find a fish. There you go. See it's, how well it's, that it's does. It's boss battles. Anyway, Tolkien thought it was more than boss battles. And I guess he wasn't totally stupid, yeah. was he? But he, he, so he, and this famous essay that um, you, I, I thought you probably know about it uh, somehow. Uh, <laughs> the he objected to a lot of the things that have been said about Beowulf um, over the last how many hundred years. And one of the things he objected to was that a lot of literary critics, stop me if this sounds familiar, poo-pooed it for having monsters in. They thought, you know, it's a serious work on serious themes. So why did they put all these dragons and things in? It's rubbish. And he, he, he disagreed with that, he'd be amazed to hear. But he said that one of the problems with the Beowulf is that it's picked apart and looked at as the sum of its mm. sources mm. rather than as the... Some of its sources. The sum of its, well, this is the, the, the inheritance of stones thing. So um, the, the unknown poet builds this tower in the field. He builds his Beowulf out of uh, Germanic uh, myths and folk tales and um, uh, Christian beliefs and poetic, poetic traditions. 
Um, so it's his work, but it also relies on everything else. And then all the scholars come in, they swarm over the tower. Gotcha. And they tear it to pieces looking for hidden inscriptions on the stones. And he, he says, myth is alive at once and in all its parts and dies before it can be dissected. So if you're world building rather than myth making, mm. then what you're building is, is uh, here's an analogy. A human being is composed of um, a lot of different trace elements. You know, a lot of this is water. Uh, 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 some of this is potassium. Uh, and, and so on. If you dump water, carbon, potassium, and what all in a bucket, you make a, and golem. Get a gold stir. Then a human does not step out of it. No, that's true. That is true. I mean, I'm quite conflicted about that, really, because because of course he's right. But on the other hand, you know, the, my degree is in literary criticism, so mm. I feel like there is a place and there is something interesting that can come out of dissecting something with a particular mm. lens because if someone said you know just talk to me about Beowulf I could talk about it but I wouldn't be able to have a particular focus in detail unearth anything that you couldn't get from reading the text itself but I understand from his point of view as somebody who was creating the world and was actually yeah. writing and, and, and evincing this um, experience the last thing you want is some idiot to come along and say well I think the way that you've treated you know the women in the context of how you were writing and, and you know is, is, is not really but point. I mean you know talking was himself a critic obviously and he wasn't against critics he was just against a particular sort of uh, non-synthesizing approach as I understand mm. it and I think it, that, that's the problem with 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 world building is, is as, as a as an approach and as a term is you want to start out with um, it encourages people, sorry, I should say, to start out by building up a series of bricks and then you get something that looks like all the other things that are built out of bricks. And again, I really want to say this here because I'm sure there are people listening who've uh, worked on big AAA games. The kind of things you can do when you are an Oxford don working in the 1930s on your passion project on your own or a couple of indie creators sitting in a London flat putting together a game about a library the constraints you're under are very, very different from the mm. constraints you're when you're working in an IP uh, that is, is the product of literally thousands of minds working together. So you have to take a more industrial approach. Mm. And, there's, there's and you do have to lay down rules so that other people can follow them and make sure that... Exactly. You know, you and, and really you need to understand from the beginning. Yeah. And I think even within, the, the, there's, there's room for more longing for the sea and less analysing the precise um, salt content of the seawater. But it's funny you mention this because um, I was going to talk about Gormenghast, which is one of my favourite books ever, as you know. I do. And um, that is famous for creating such a believable and unusual world. So I was going to ask you about you know, the world building and that. Um, but I, I realised reading about it that uh, he was heavily influenced by um, Charles Dickens. He really liked a lot of what he did. And Dickens Charles, is great, isn't he? I'm not, a biggest, I'm not the biggest fan of Charles Dickens, as you know, she said, bravely not rising to the bait. Um, but I was going to say something he wrote, actually, in one of his novels sounds a lot like... Tolkien's thing about don't mm. build everything up from, from minutia in hard times um, one of the, the opening scene uh, which ultimately sets up things that conclude the novel as well um, is a teacher called Gradgrind called Gradgrind or right. Mr Umchokum Child I can't remember which one <laughs> seriously Mr Umchokum Child um, one of those two is teaching a lesson and he asks I think someone called like a flora um, how to define a horse and she says something mimsy and feminine like oh, I have one and they're, they're like their noses and they're friends with me mm. and he sort of hits her on the head and says stupid child and he goes to this other guy who's this sort of anemic looking blonde guy who's the, who's the sort of champion of the class and he says Bitzer what, what, how do you define a horse and this horrible child stands up and says um, quadruped gramnivorous and that's the correct answer 
Now, I believe this is what us professionals called satire, and it was not actually Dickens suggesting that this is the essence of a horse mm. captured by a child. Um, but it's exactly that same thing, that you cannot evince the true essence of something by describing it in very emotionless parts, and that sounds a lot like what you were talking about. So I guess you writers do agree. Well, so, so, some do sometimes. But, but he, he, Gormenghast <laughs> is a very good example, actually, because how many maps have you seen of Gormenghast? None. How big is Gormenghast? Really big. But how, how many how many metres? I don't care. There we go. That's not how far is it from the nearest city? Well, that's the, What's this population? See, again, that's the thing. I, uh, so, so one of my favourite book, books, like just a uh, famous much less than it deserves honestly because it's just an astonishing feat um but what you remember is the fact that it's you know you remember the characters because mm. it's brilliant at having these sort of almost caricaturish dickensian creatures that he mm. has brought around this weird place you remember the castle you remember certain events like you know certain things that happen with owls and certain floods and yada yada but you don't give a hoot about whether the craggy rocks are to the east or the west or how far it takes you to walk to the mountain mm. what you care about are all the things I've just said. Exactly, and that's the difference between myth-making and, and world-building. And um, as long as the myth feels consistent or the setting feels consistent, it's all fine. That's the suspension of disbelief that Tolkien talked about um, when he started talking about sub-creation. And uh, where's the quote? Uh, inside it, what the sub-creator relates is true. It accords the laws of that world. You therefore believe it while you are, as it were, inside. The moment disbelief arises, the spell is broken. The magic or other art has failed. So if you start out with all the numbers and all the details, then you can have a very consistent world, but not an interesting world. It, 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 and again, it, because all the worlds which are built by a sort of world-building-first approach consist largely of numbers and details, mm. it will look like all those other worlds. But Gormenghast, what do you get in Gormenghast? You get the Tower of Flint, you get owls, you get the, the Hall of Bright Carvings, you get all these things that are unlike. Lovely sad future. Lovely sad future. But here's another thing. So when I first started putting together Four in London, um, there were very specific rules I laid down for what could and couldn't go in there. Um, and uh, I, I, not necessarily consciously, but, but there were three sort of classes of questions um, that were, were, that it could address, um, the conversations about it could address. One is questions people really wanted the ans answers to, like who are the masters of the bazaar? Why does no one die down here? Another one it's questions that we had to, to answer to some extent, like, are the trees alive? Or what do people eat? The answer is sort of, um, uh, I, th I think we settled on parasynthesis for the trees. So some of them are alive, sort of, they're a bit scrubby and rubbish. Um, and people eat mushrooms, because mushrooms go underground and you get mushroom wine, the mushroom bouquets and all the rest of it. So, it's there. so the questions people want the answers to, and there's questions that you need to answer to make the setting feel real. And there's the questions that nobody is interested in, you don't want people to ask. Mm -hmm. So here's a really important thing that um, certainly up until I left was not addressed in Fall London. I'd be quite surprised being addressed now. The city fell, I think, nine miles, was carried down by about nine miles, and then set down. How's the, how's the sewers work? Sewers are a major preoccupation of Victorian Britain. Without the, the big, um, the, the, the grand sewerage projects that occurred, in the 19th century, the city would have founded in its own filth. So, so what, what happened? Did the brick remain intact? How far down did it go? What? Never addressed. Nobody cares. No, Nobody I wants to know want about to play the sewers. A story about the sewers, honestly. No. So that's, unless, of course, you know, you, 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 you're, par yeah. you're passing through the sewers with a torch and, and there's, there's a sort of um, uh, worm moose down there that, that thinks it's a jelly or worm something. Worm moose? Worm moose, yes. Yeah, I'm there for that. There we go. But, but that's the thing. There's, there's questions that you need to answer. There's questions that you want to answer. 
and there's questions that if you engage with them at all, your answer probably should be some variation on look over there, it's a worm moose. <laughs> Well, that's good because we actually got someone um, tweeting at us earlier this week. He said, I've created a Twitter account simply to ask you this. And it was some complicated question about um, did the egg come from the black flax um, before or after the intercalate occurred? Mm. Something like that. And that is exactly the sort of thing you're asking, right? Because of uh, people who don't know what the hell I've just said, these are referencing um, ancient pseudo-gods and cultist simulator that you have created an entire pantheon and, and um, myth around, mm. but you haven't ever sat down and said, here is the true word of the hours and here's everything that they did. Not everything. So, but... but but go on, I'm going to row back from that. No, no, I was, just, I was just saying it's interesting because that's sort of question that we were asked. It's, not, it's, it's something that I know that we don't answer as mm. a studio because firstly, we want to maintain mystery and a lot of the fun of Cultist Simulator is um, connecting the dots yourself. Mm. So if we connect it for people, it's not fun. You get that immediate kind of boost of knowledge, but then you lose interest and that's the anathema to the whole project. But also, I mean, I certainly don't know the answer because you haven't written down a Bible of everything that occurred. I obviously know there is some deep lore that obviously does cohere and does have a narrative that we don't talk about yeah. openly. Um, but yeah, I think it's just what you're saying. So it is, but the thing is, I don't want to push too far in the direction of just making it all up as you go along, because people can tell. Yes. And this is another favourite. Um, yes, they can. Uh, hobby horse is is especially in the age of the internet. You know, you might have got away with it in the 1970s, but in an age when when Reddit has put together the answers for the deep plot of Westworld. Uh, long oh, before I love revealed. the Reddit Westworld forums. But that's the thing, you know, if the clues are there and they're fair clues, people work it out. Yeah. So one of the answers to make things mysteries rather than puzzles is not necessarily one answer as so much as a set of answers. But I, as you know, I love David Lynch, and you don't because um, somebody extracted a piece of your heart uh, with a fish when you were young. Uh, a fair summary. But like a lot of people my age, I watched Twin Peaks first time around when I was... 17, 19, something like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are very disappointed when it became apparent that... He didn't really have a... No, he has an idea of the yeah. kind of effect he wanted to achieve, but in terms of what's actually going on, what is the And that's why watch? I dislike... You know, I know that I was... You know that I respect him. You know that he obviously has immense talent. I'm mm -hmm. not quibbling with that. But I do... I think my issue with him is, a, is an emotional one that stems from that realisation that he didn't really have a plan. Because I felt I was taken on for a bit of a ride. He did have a plan. It's just... I think, first of all, the plan maybe didn't extend over two seasons of television. And secondly, the plan was to make the audience feel a particular way rather than to give all the answers. Mm. And he was, you know, famously... Frustrated. Bob, uh, the, the scary grey possessing monster. Yes, Twin Peaks spoilers, everyone. Uh, the, hey, there'll be some young'uns. There will be. Well, well it's time they, they learn pain. Uh, <laughs> Bob entered the Twin Peaks mythos when um, either Lynch or one of the actors saw um, a cameraman with sort of dirty grey hair, crouched um, in a mirror, and I didn't realise it was him for a moment. It was a really frightening it moment. Was scary, yeah. And that goes into uh, the What's at the heart the of show the mystery? As uh, uh, Laura Palmer's mother's uh, vision of Bob, and that's that's where it came from. I mean, there would have been probably a possessing spirit and, and whatnot, somebody called Laura Palmer, but that came out of that. So you want to leave your framework open because all the good ideas you have. Um, in, in year zero are, are not going to be as good as all the ideas you'll have over the next two, three years you might be working on something yeah. in the next six months. But at the same time, if anything goes, then nothing makes sense. 
Yeah, and we and had that twelve-minute episode of a bomb slowly going off while some people in black and white look is, at the camera, which is genius. And it wasn't it wasn't twelve oh, minutes. Sorry, you just didn't want to watch it. Anyway, but but the point like is, I, I'm not David Lynch, and I can't get away with what he can get away. You have with. similar hair, an actually. Actual when you're old and grey, your hair will that's be quite the, that's similar. That's the secret, like Samson. But uh, but but I was determined from that point that if anybody actually broke into my house, please don't break into my house. Uh, <laughs> And uh, managed to uh, crack all my, my heavy-duty military encryption on my spreadsheets. Uh, <laughs> they would find, basically, there is an answer to the question that you mentioned yeah. a, a while ago. Yeah. Now, it might be quite an elusive answer, or it might be an answer that doesn't commit, but it's something. There are no, to the best of my ability, there are no answers in anything I've ever written which are just, Ooh, we want to get there. Yeah, I know. It's all there's, there's, there's something. But at the same time, um, the world of cultist or of Sunder Sea or anything else I've worked on is is inevitably a tiny, tiny segment through what that world would actually be. Because whether it's one person working on it or 10 or 100 people working on it, it's still enormously a sophisticated on an actual whole world. It's going to be a lot of stuff that you leave out, you know, the names of all the bit parts and which species exactly what stuff you know you don't put that stuff in so it's always going to be a tiny segment it's going to be a spotlight that flickers over the dark landscape of the world and you want to make Ooh, sure nice. that the spotlight lights on the interesting stuff and that's the metaphor for sauron's eye i used to have a uh i didn't realize what this reminded me of. i used to have an argument um with a, an argument um a, a a one-time friend of mine who uh derided um God damn it, what's his name? Mad German director, uh, Herzog. Uh, and, and I said, you know, one he of the things I like about German. Herzog is, is he will just put a camera in front of something and leave it there for a bit. He won't, you know, you know dart it around, you have to look at it from angles. And he's not worried people are going to get bored. He's just giving you fucking, you, I, you're putting the camera, it's interesting. Um, and my interlocutor said, um, well, you know, I think if you're going to do that, you better make sure something interesting happens in front of the camera. And he suggested that Herzog doesn't always do that. It's not he realise too much of people's patience. No. Maybe, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But I think that's the thing. Is, <laughs> Definitely is, not. Is, um, whenever you're making any kind of art, that there's a, a, a physical camera in film um, or, or you know, viewpoint in theatre. There is a, uh, a digital camera in games. You know, there's always a point of view in games. And there's a metaphorical camera in literature, you're always looking at one thing rather than another thing because that's the way consciousness works. So you can only focus on one thing at a time. And if you want to make it worth somebody's while, then focusing on plumbing is probably not going to be where you want to point the spotlight. So that's interesting because I think we've mentioned before in this podcast um, reader response theory, which is something that really struck me when mm. I was doing literature which is basically that the reader has quite an active role to play in um, literature. It's not just that some, some sort of brain in a jar gets given a text and the text is complete and the brain in the jar just has an experience of, of, of enjoying that complete text. It's that the text is incomplete until it is in the process of being read by a, a, a monkey brain. Mm -hmm. And that is interesting because it means basically there's, every, there's a unique interpretation of that text dependent on that individual brain's um, attention and interest and context and yada yada which is why you know two people can read the same book and one of them can hate it and one of them can love it or why two people can read the same book and say I think it was really talking about this theme and the other person can say no for me it was all about you know dystopia or whatever and, and it, it, it's that sort of nuance because there's so much in there and what you've just said sounds like um, world building for you sort of really high quality stuff that makes a good narrative game or a good um, fictional world whatever medium is about involving the reader in some way because if you're saying that Herzog puts a camera in front of something 
but doesn't make sure that something interesting mm. happens. You're saying that he expects the reader to find something interesting and trust his framing, which actually puts me in a much more active role than, I don't know, watching a Superman film where at some point there's be a fight scene and I just sit there and I eat my popcorn, if you know mm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, that's a different type of experience. People can have that if they want, but it's quite a passive experience. Whereas if Werner Herzog is saying, I'm not going to make something really exciting and dramatic happen to automatically capture your attention you have to work with me to make this experience worthwhile that's i think that's quite interesting i think it is and i think it goes back to your thing about you know it's not about laying down the rules of the world before somebody and saying here's my world read all these logs and read all the history and read the timeline you're saying work with me feel something experience this world as we go along and kind of take part rather than, you know, here's the Silmarillion, go and read it. When you've read it, come back and we'll have a meeting. That's, that's, that's exactly it. I think, you know, any kind, of, any kind of art, any kind of creative work ultimately is about one person's mind um, overlapping with another person's mind. It's about somebody presents something and then... Erotic. Then, yeah. Well, you know, but it, but it can be... It can be... Uh, my mind is to your mind. It can be... Sexy Vulcan It can be erotic. sort of real-time thing. You know, it can be people watching theatre or engaging in a, a tabletop or playing station. Yeah. Or it could be that you read a D&D book that somebody um, wrote um, uh, uh, 1,500 years ago. When was that? Was it 1,500 years ago? Um, it was 11th century. Well, it's hard to tell, right, because the story itself was an oral tradition that was passed down. So the story, mm. I think, is kind of 800 AD. Okay. Um, and I think the um, Cotton Vitalis AXV, which is the, the one written copy we have hmm. um i think is 1100 ish i can't remember but kind of around that time okay so a thousand ish year old um poem that, that touches somebody uh a thousand years on hmm. but it's, it's that interaction that's the point and this is <laughs> this is one of the reasons that so much stuff that's been said about interactive fiction i used to think was a bit wrong-headed and now i realize it's howdingly stupendously wrong-headed <laughs> because the idea that you have an advance from um linear texts that are presented to you to uh, cyber texts that provide a whole new basis of experience obviously in both cases you are still interacting with the with the creator mm. whether they provided something algorithmic or something in codex form you, you're still interacting with what they provided and you are placing your own spin and interpretation on it mm. uh, e- even if somebody actually um, plugged your brain into a bunch of uh, uh, you put your brain in a jar and, and, and fed you information you would still be having thoughts about what you were given mm. your experience would still be different from other people if you mm. did different memories anyway so the uh, w- w- when I'm not feeling um, glum and I don't think oh art is just an excuse for people who um, can't do heavy lifting uh, to get money for food <gasps> don't uh, take that away from me then, then I think um, art is 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 the thoughts of human beings touching the thoughts of other human beings in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise and so reducing it to world is a bit of a shame well i thought you were going to get crosser and funnier about that but actually you said something quite profound yeah i care thank you well i live but uh but i care too much about this to get cross about it i guess is the answer and i don't i don't want to tell people you're wrong to want to do a world building Mm. Uh, I just want to tell people you don't need to start with a timeline. You just need to make sure that, you know, if you, if you invented a bunch of kings or presidents or, or mythologies or whatever, at some point you need to make sure they don't all crash into each other. But ultimately, the itch that makes people want to do something that manifests as myth-making or setting design or world-building or story-writing is the itch that all of us feel when we sit down, when we're eight, and we start drawing a map. 
and uh, the itch that, so that, that, that we connect with somebody who opens a book and sees the map on the first page and thinks, oh, I wonder what's there, and I wonder why we'll get there, and I wonder how that works out. So, so, so that uh, creative act and response is, is lovely, and I'd like to see more of it in the world, and fewer toilets. Sponsored by Weather Factory. <laughs> well, I'm quite moved by that, honestly. I didn't. I think I should say something funny, but I think that's just nice, and we should leave it there, really. Could you get another talking quote? I mean, not. You don't want to have an out-of-context talking quote. Doesn't that doesn't that ruin? Vivisection. There you go. You didn't. Just, you can't just. That word isn't a quote. Out-of-context quote. Have a spooky day. Mm-hmm.